This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. It was the first time that the FBI had pulled back the curtain a little bit and showed me the evidence that they had that Hansen was the spy, the greatest spy in U.S. history, the most damaging we'd ever hunted, someone who had gotten away with it for over two decades. And here I was stuck in the room with him. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. Eric O'Neill was working as an undercover agent in the FBI in Washington when he got assigned to help trap a suspected spy. The year was 2000, and O'Neill was just 26 years old. He already had experience tracking suspected spies and terrorists as a member of an FBI team known as the Ghosts. But this was different. The suspect this time was a fellow member of the Bureau. His name was Robert Hansen. O'Neill would spend the next several months on the case and nearly lose his marriage over it. His story begins on a Sunday morning in December 2000. This is part one of a two-part story. O'Neill takes it from here. My wife and I had just been married for three months, and we're still in sort of the honeymoon phase, and I got a call. Phones should not ring on Sunday mornings. I mean, they just shouldn't. And it's certainly not at 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning when you're still asleep. I picked up the phone, and it was Supervisory Special Agent Gene McClellan. And now Gene ran the entire squad of FBI ghosts, the undercover operatives who primarily conduct undercover operations and surveillance of espionage and terrorism targets all the way from Baltimore down to Richmond, so that entire sort of Washington, D.C. area. And him calling me wasn't terribly unusual, waking me up in the morning, because when you do the work that I did, you work 24-7. So undercover work means you follow your target when they move. And if they're on the move, then you get up, even if it's early in the morning on a Sunday, and go after them. But this was different, because I said, okay, Gene, give me a minute to get dressed. I'll come downtown. We can talk and you tell me the assignment. And he said, go ahead and get dressed, but you don't have to come downtown. I'm parked right outside. So the supervisory special agent in charge of my entire squad coming to my little apartment in Eastern Market on a Sunday morning was very unusual. And I was worried that there had been some compromising information, what we call compromise. We, I was running a lot of Russian targets at that point. Sometimes they learn who you are and they, they do sort of what today we might call swatting, call in some sort of fake information that means that now you're under investigation. And I was worried that I was going to walk outside into an arrest and then have to explain myself. And so I tentatively walked the few steps to his big old Crown Victoria, got in the passenger side, looked at him and said, what's this about? And he said, have you ever heard of a guy named Robert Hansen? Hansen was a senior agent who was suspected of espionage. We had been going after a mole that we knew was in the intelligence community somewhere for over two decades. The entire intelligence community knew there was a problem because 
operations that we were running overseas were failing. Between 1984 and 85, we lost every single Russian asset, all of the spies working for us. They were all, within the space of that year, rounded up and either executed or imprisoned in hard labor. So we had no eyes and ears there who were helping us, no good sources. So we knew that there was a spy somewhere high up in the intelligence community, just didn't know where. And my job was going to be to go undercover, watch Hansen, see where he goes, who he meets with in FBI headquarters, and of course, find out whether he was the spy that we were after. And then once I actually was successful in doing that, catch him. And now Gene said, we want you to work in a brand new section we've built for him, just for him at FBI headquarters as his assistant, as the first member of his staff in a new division called the Information Assurance Section, which is an old term for what we now call cybersecurity. The goal of building the Information Assurance Section and putting Robert Hansen in charge of it was to put an asset in there with him who would talk to him. They wanted us to have a conversation. And that's why I fit this investigation better than anyone else they could find, even though I wasn't trained for it. I was young, male, which were two important things. Uh, Robert Hansen didn't have in his career the greatest respect for females, unfortunately for him. And he had a son that was about my age. So they thought that that was a, a good coordinating point. His son was in law school as was I at the time. I was uh, I was doing all this work for the FBI. I was also going to night school at George Washington University, which I continued to do throughout the case. And I knew how to turn on a computer. <laughs> I was one of those people in the 80s who was fascinated with security. You would have called me a hacker back then. I also knew how to hunt spies. That's what I was trained to do. What I didn't have is the training to conduct what's called an elicitation investigation. And that's a term of art, which means that I'm having a conversation with you. You think we're just having a benign conversation, but really what I'm doing is trying to learn things about you and get you to tell me things that will improve our ability to win the investigation without you knowing that that's what I'm trying to do. So it's very tricky. So I wasn't trained to do that as a ghost, but I had a lot of commonalities to Robert Hansen. I mean, the FBI really did some deep digging. His father was in the military, so was mine. His mom was a nurse, so was mine. His mother was named Vivian, so was mine. And so all of these things gave us things to talk about. So the first day that I ever saw Robert Hansen, it was one of those tricky situations where I got to the office before him and I was sitting at my desk, which I assumed was my desk, he had a separate office in our secure office suite on the ninth floor of FBI headquarters. And he walked in, kind of, you know, looked at me skeptically, like, who's this guy? And then walked into his office. And I remember he was carrying an exercise machine, so it was really odd. And he had his bag slung over his shoulder that I would come to, to know very well. Um, walked into his office, and I didn't hear anything. And... That morning, I had talked to my wife, and um, she's real interesting. She's German. And I said, you know, I got to meet my new boss. What am I supposed to say? And she said, let's talk about football. It's all you guys ever talk about over here. And 
you know, back then the Washington football team was the Redskins and they were doing terrible and the coach was going to get fired. And so there were lots of thoughts to talk about. So I went to his office, knocked on the door and thinking I was saying going to say something very clever about cybersecurity or building computer systems or what we were going to do. And, and the way he looked at me just set me so off kilter. I think I blurted something out like, what do you think about the Redskins this year, boss? And he said, football is a brutal and barbaric sport, and anyone who plays it is dumber than the people who watch it. And I thought, oh, man, we're not going to get along. Finally, after bumbling for a while, he shook his head and he said, have you ever heard of Hansen's Law? And this caught me a bit, and I said, okay, now maybe we're getting somewhere. What's Hansen's Law? And he said, words that absolutely shocked me. You know, we hadn't even had a conversation. I'd bumbled trying to do my job. I was feeling really inadequate at this point. And he says, the spy is in the worst possible place. Now, I didn't know how to react to that, so I just froze. And I'm wondering, I'm supposed to catch this guy and they think he's a spy. And now he's saying the spy is in the worst possible place. Is he is he challenging me? Is he joking with me? Is is he just trying to throw me off balance because I'm totally there right now, stumbling? But I kept a poker face, kept everything very calm. And I looked back at him and I said, OK, boss, what do you mean by that? And he said, the spy is in the worst possible place. It's what I call Hansen's Law, and they should teach this at the FBI Academy. The spy is that person that has access to the information that will do the most damage and the knowledge and the wherewithal to sell it to those who can use it and pay him the most money. And that is what we are here in the FBI trying to catch, that spy in the worst possible place. That is our job in information assurance. That's what our section is going to do. I was assigned an agent to give me my marching orders, make sure I stayed on task, and to be very honest, make sure I didn't screw up. Kate Alleman was the one person that I could discuss everything I learned in my interactions with Hansen. We would debrief every single night when he left FBI headquarters. Then I'd leave FBI headquarters, I'd go out onto the street, walk a few blocks, and Kate would be sitting there in her car. I'd jump in the car with her. She would drive me to law school, which was great because, you know, that was kind of a long walk. And we would debrief on the way to law school. And then she'd drop me off and I would do two hours of classes before I could finally go home and it was pretty late. Occasionally she would wait and pick me up after law school. We'd go back to the office because they were conducting a search. So sometimes I was getting home incredibly late. When I did get home, I would spend a few minutes with my wife, who was getting increasingly upset about the situation. I was never home. I was working far more than I ever did when I was undercover chasing spies and terrorists. But suddenly I'm working what I told her was a computer job and working more than I ever had before. And once she fell asleep, I would sneak out of bed. I would pull this laptop that I had hidden in our apartment and I would type up my log for the entire day, everything that I could recall. So it was a long cycle of meets and each morning she would give me my new marching orders. And I remember Kate saying, you got to gain his trust or make him angry. We want to see how he'll react if we ever do get to an arrest situation. Hansen was the kind of person who had to be right about everything. He was a narcissist, which is a very common 
common aspect of people who uh, betray or who become spies. He certainly did not like authority. Anyone he saw above him in authority, with the exception of the director of the FBI, who I think he kind of liked because they went to the same church, he had a lot of disrespect for. In particular, the section chief who worked with us, Rich Garcia, didn't like him much at all. He didn't like to be interrupted. I learned that. Anytime I walked in his office without announcing or knocking and waiting for him to hear, I got yelled at. And he was incredibly meticulous. The kind of person who would memorize the position of every single thing in his office. It's actually a really good skill if you're going to be a spy or a spy hunter. I came into his office one day. He called me in. And he grabs me by the shoulder. And the next thing I know, he pulls me down to the floor. Now we're both kneeling on the floor. Our faces are inches from the carpet. I remember it was sort of this uh, prickly blue carpet. I know because my cheek hit it. And, you know, he's breathing like right in front of me. We're both face down on the floor. And he has me look at the corner of his TV stand on one side of the room. And he said, see, it's been moved. I could see the indentation right there on the carpet. It's been moved. Did you move this? And I knew that the FBI did a search. Search teams would come up and they would go through everything and they would take pictures of where everything was. They could put it back in precisely the place it was. And I knew in that moment, well, the search team had moved it and not put it back where they needed to. But I wasn't going to say no, because then he'd be suspicious. So I said, of course, I must have bumped it when I was in your office. So when were you in my office? I said, well, I come into your office to put things in your office, like memos in your inbox and messages that you get and those sort of things. So I think I bumped it with my hip. Maybe it moved a little. What's the big deal? And we stood up and he looked at me and he had this way of kind of glaring and holding the glare just to make you nervous. And he said, I see everything. I know everything. Never forget that. One of the strangest operations clandestine midnight operations that I ever conducted uh, during the case was one for Robert Hansen. He asked me to steal the artwork from the assistant director that he didn't like. He had a conference room where he had three pieces of art. Now, they were hunting scenes. So foxes, you know, running through the forest. There was a scene of someone in a boat in a storm. There were a couple other scenes. And So three of them, they were prints. They probably weren't expensive prints. The frames were probably the most expensive. But he said, we have no artwork, and I'd like you to get us some artwork. There's a conference room on the seventh floor, which is where all the brass is. You just don't want to be caught wandering on the seventh floor. That's where the director is and all his staff. And I'd like you to uh, get that artwork for me. And I said, you mean you want me to go request it from the assistant director? And And he scoffed at me and he said, don't request it, just go get it. So I went to law school. I got done, you know, around 10, 1030. I went back to the office. I told Kate, I'm going to go steal some artwork. And she said, "Uh, really? And I said, I'm I'm stealing it from the assistant director. And she kind of grinned. She thought, that's funny. We're going to have to let him know what's happening. Uh, I said, at some point, maybe, because clearly Hanson's after this guy. And so I did. I went I went into the office late at night. I went down to the seventh floor. 
I found the conference room. It was sort of stuffed with things. So I guess, well, maybe they're not really using it, but there was the art hanging on the walls. I grabbed three paintings. I put them on a cart that had been used for a bunch of box computers. And I wheeled that sucker over the elevator and up to back to the ninth floor, brought them into the office, hung two of them in the main office. And then the one that I thought that he would like the most, which were these people out at sea, I left in his office for him to uh, to hang. And he loved it. He came in the next morning and he grinned at me. And it was one of the first smiles I ever think I got from him. And it was one of those moments where I started to gain his trust. I had to do something bad. I think I had to, I had to become a thief to get the trust of a thief. You're listening to I Spy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We return to the story of FBI agent Eric O'Neill, who has been assigned to trap a suspected spy. Not just any spy, but one of the most damaging ones in U.S. history. Back to O'Neill. Robert Hansen was a very religious man who shared the same faith as myself. I'm a Catholic, which, of course, was another reason the FBI put me on the case. And we spoke about Catholicism and faith a lot. It was a main topic of our conversation. Hansen also began the process of introducing me to his part of the Catholic Church, which was Opus Dei. And he began to sponsor me into Opus Dei. He wanted me to join Opus Dei. So one day he walked in the office with his coat. It was in uh, January, so it was chilly out told me, get my coat. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to church. And I said, right in the middle of the day? He said, yes, I go. If I can't go in the morning before work, I go at noon. And so I said, okay, let's go. Anything I could do with him, anything I could learn about him, I was willing to do, even if it was something strange like going to church together and that icky feeling of using my faith in order to try to win an investigation. I had to get over that. And we walked a number of blocks to the Catholic Information Center. Uh, It was a bookstore. And then the back doors of the bookstore open, and it's a chapel, a beautiful chapel. And we walk in and kneel down, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's watching me the whole time because he's suspicious, still suspicious of me, even though I'm gaining his trust, and watching me to make sure that I really am Catholic. I didn't just tell him that because... I'm an asset put there to catch him. Well, good news is I was raised by a, a Irish father and an Italian mother, so that's about as Catholic as you can get in Catholic schools my whole life and knew the Mass chapter and verse. But he was watching me really hard when it got to the time to say the Our Father, and good thing that I have that prayer memorized. It was a test that I passed because after that moment, he really opened up to me. One of the ways that you do gain trust with a person is have something you can debate and have something that you debate in a way that doesn't lead to a shouting match. And this was our great debate. When I was going to have children, I had been married to my wife for over three months and she wasn't pregnant. So he would ask me, what are you doing wrong? And I'd say, doing nothing wrong. We're not ready to have children yet. He's like, well, 
it's against your faith to make that decision. You know, God wants married people to have children, and so that's what you're supposed to do. And we would argue about it. He was a dog with a bone about getting my wife pregnant. That was really important to him. And it became something we could argue about in a healthy way. And I started to use that debate to move him to where I needed him. It was where I really started actively pursuing the investigation for the first time instead of just reacting to what Hanson wanted me to do. And here's how I did it. I started saying, I am not ready to have children. I can't afford children. We don't even have a room for a child in the crappy little apartment we live in, which is all we can afford. And until I, I start making more money in the FBI, there's no way that my wife and I can afford our current lives, much less bring another person into it. And he would start saying things like, there is a way. God will find a way. And he was getting closer and closer, I think, to, to talking about the way that he was able to make ends meet, becoming a spy. So much so that I, I was randomly approached by one of the senior agents on the task force who told me that he believes that Hansen was trying to recruit me and that if it happened, my marching orders were to make sure it happened and that I facilitated it, that I encouraged it, which I did. So Hansen was finally beginning to trust me. I played to his ego, which I found was always something you could do. But at one point, I started to doubt that the case was worth my time or the FBI's time. Hansen was a very stressful person to work for, as I explained. He would punishingly abuse me. He was a bully and a, a difficult boss in order to, I think, put me off my game and get me to make a mistake, to give him the information he needed to know whether he was under investigation. I was his one point of attack. So I was exhausted. I was also in law school. I was trying to deal with being a newlywed and failing miserably at that. And I was filled with stress and lacking any resemblance of sleep. And so at one point, I told Kate, I want out. I, you know, this isn't going anywhere. I might not be the right person for this. And I'm not finding anything super useful to you. And so I really think that, you know, maybe I, I, I need to step away from this just for my own health. And she was excellent at leading you to the conclusion that you knew was right instead of just telling you. So Kate Alleman took me to the Washington field office. So Hansen was gone. I think it was the Right to Life march, and he was joining his wife downtown. And I was just in the office with time. And so she came, got me, and brought me to the Washington field office where the case was being run out of, to the nerve center there, the secure place where the three squads working the Robert Hansen investigation were doing all the real work. All the analysts were there, and the, the special agents were running down leads and were following up on any scrap of information I was able to get out of Hansen. And it was good to see all these people working this case, that, you know, I wasn't alone, that I was part of a team, even though, you know, working undercover can be very lonely. And she showed me letters, letters that Hansen had written to the Russians way back in the 80s during the heyday of his career as a spy. And the letters, they said, we're 99% sure this is Hansen. Of course, we're not 100% sure. We haven't connected Hansen today to the spy who signed the letters, who 
called himself Ramon Garcia. But we think we're close, and we think you can get us there. But she let me read the letters, and the letters made me angry. It was the first time that the FBI had pulled back the curtain a little bit and showed me the evidence that they had that Hansen was the spy, the greatest spy in U.S. history, the most damaging we'd ever hunted, someone who had gotten away with it for over two decades. And here I was stuck in the room with him. And I learned how we had learned about Hansen in the first place, that the FBI and the CIA had recruited a source in Russia who was a former KGB intelligence officer who, when the KGB was disbanded, was out of a job and had done what so many former intelligence officers did when the KGB collapsed. He sold secrets. This guy stole a slim file of information and and sold it to the FBI and CIA Joint Task Force for millions of dollars. He went into witness protection and uh, disappears somewhere into the U.S. living the great life. And for all of that, he gave a slim folder of information, within which was a trash bag, a cassette tape, and some letters. Now, Robert Hansen, what he would do is he would wrap his drops in a trash bag and seal it with packing tape and put them under a bridge at Foxstone Park in Vienna, Virginia. And he did this for decades, and that was how he would load his dead drop of secrets, which would then later be picked up by a Russian intelligence officer, back then Soviet, coming out of the embassy, who would pick up the secrets and then later leave money in a separate park for Hansen, which he would go pick up, usually like $10,000 in $100 bills. And that trash bag would then go in the courier pouch, would get to Moscow to the intelligence officer over there, the KG intelligence officer, and they would open it and extract the secrets, but the KGB had no idea who Hansen was or what agency he was in. And Hansen was meticulous about hiding his identity and protecting even the agency where he worked in. But they were desperate to know, so they kept everything, including the trash bag he used to wrap his drop. Now, I learned that the way that Hansen had first been pointed to was when the FBI ran the prints on the trash bag and came back a partial match for Robert Philip Hansen. The cassette tape was the only other mistake Hansen ever made. And it was the recording that the Russian consulate made when Hansen called once, the only time he contacted them in person, the only time they ever heard his voice, where he called and he said, this is Ramon Garcia, I have to talk to so-and-so. And they switched him through and he said, where is my money? Because he had gone to the park, couldn't find his money, was upset about that and called to find out where. And they told him, did you look at the north side of the of the um, podium, you know, in the uh, amphitheater? And he hadn't. He looked at the wrong side and he went and he collected it later. But the one time he called and of course, they recorded it because they wanted to know who he was. Because once they learn who you are, now you never get to stop spying for them. You're a spy for life until they tell you you're done. And a few people listened to it in a very small group that recovered that intelligence from overseas, and they realized it was Robert Hansen. So in that moment, imagine feeling out of your depth. You know, I had to go back in there. I had to continue doing the job. But now I was armed with 
the sense that I was doing the job of law enforcement and that it wasn't just my job, it was my duty to catch Robert Hansen. Eric O'Neill now works as a national security strategist and a public speaker. He recounts his experience with Hansen in the book, Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. You'll hear part two of his story in our next episode. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for podcast is Dan Efron. Our team includes Rob Sachs, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Claudia Tatey. We now have a free newsletter with beautiful illustrations that the artist Guy Shield makes for us. Show notes and other good stuff. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash newsletter. That's foreignpolicy.com slash newsletter. This show is made possible through the support of Foreign Policy Readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart news and analysis from around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code podcast at checkout. Next week on the show, Eric O'Neill lays a trap for Robert Hansen. Kate hands me the Palm Pilot, the floppy disk, and the sand disk data card and says, run. And I do. Three flights of steps, run into his office, and I hear him coming through that first big vault door. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. <laughs>